I am Roxy Zwicker, your mystery maven, here to share with you some tales of the macabre, spooky, scary, and, well, you decide if they are lucky tales or unlucky tales. I have tales this evening that cover every corner of New England. We have a story tonight from Maine about a haunted farmhouse. We have a tale of rising from the dead in Vermont. We have a poisonous pustule coming from Connecticut. And we have some eerie trappings coming to you from Cape Cod. So I am very excited to bring these stories to you. So if this is your first time joining us, let me give you a quick introduction before we crack open the crypt tonight. So as I mentioned, my name is Roxy Zwicker from New England Curiosities. So I have been doing um, ghost tours since about 2000 on the New Hampshire seacoast, and I have been sharing ghost stories professionally since 1994. If you are interested in New England folklore, ghost stories, and things that go bump in the night, I am your mystery maven for all of that. All right, so are you settled in? Did you light a candle? Do you have some sweet snacks to nibble on while we have our ghost storytelling hour? So our first ghost story this evening is going to be way, way up in Maine. So of course we love Maine. Um, Maine has so many fascinating tales and this particular story comes all the way from Eastport, Maine. And we are going to work our way all the way back in Women Curiosity's time machine to about 1905 for this terrifying tale. So Eastport, you might be able to get a, a notion as to where it is because just outside of Eastport, you will find West Quaddy Head Lighthouse. That is the red and white candy striped lighthouse up there, which is the very first place we tip the hat to the sun in the morning as the sunrise is seen at the easternmost point of the United States in Lubeck, which of course is just next to Eastport. It's been a few years since I've been up to Eastport probably um, maybe a dozen years and I remember on my trip up to Eastport I was essentially running on fumes. I was driving and my gas light was on and I thought that I indeed would become a ghost story stranded somewhere along the side of the road. All right so as I mentioned tonight's story comes from Eastport and it's about a haunted farmhouse. Now again, you decide if this is a lucky or unlucky tale. Now, of course, the story about this ghost and the reveal behind the curtain is really one worth telling. 
So this was a small farmhouse that was out near the shore and it had quite a history. It was actually built during the revolutionary days and the last surviving person known to have lived in this house was an old man who a lot of people in town really like to just call a miser. He kind of kept to himself and seemed to be pretty content just counting his money. And it was kind of strange because after he disappeared, his money seemed uh, to uh, disappear as well. And oddly enough, the house was empty and it became rumored to be haunted. So was the ghost of the miser still watching over some secret treasure? Well, the house went to ruin pretty fast. Um, the chimney fell down and most of the window panes were broken out and it really did not look inviting for anyone to go and visit or to go and stay at. Um, certainly the work that needed to be done was prohibited for anybody who might have thought about buying this old house and fixing it up. So there was a, a man named Captain Henry Walling and he was an old retired sea captain and he decided that, you know what, he might be able to make something out of this house. And he decided that he might be able to fix it up and even settle down with his family in this old ramshackle place. So he actually made a deal with one of the heirs of the old miser who used to live there that he was going to go up and take a look, look it over and decide maybe, you know, if it could be fixed. And if so, then that was going to be the place for him and he could scoop it up at next to nothing. So before he sent for his family and before he sent for his wife and children, he decided that he was going to take a look at the place himself. And he brought some carpentry tools, some hammers, some nails, and decided that he was going to fix it up himself. And on his way up there, and as he was explaining where he was going to people, you know, the old miser's house, he heard that indeed it was haunted. And he heard stories about people saying there were strange sounds coming from the house. And he also heard that people had spotted white robed figures wandering about the house at night. And of course, he was also told about the disappearance of, you know, the old miser guy and, you know, all of all of his money. But he wasn't deterred. He didn't let that stop him. He wasn't bothered by all of the tales. He decided that he was going to go and check it out no matter what. So he decided that he wasn't going to be afraid of essentially any ghosts and decided that he was all set to meet one of those uh, spirits if they truly existed. So he got there. He decided to make himself uh, dinner. He sat down, smoked his old clay pipe in typical old sea captain fashion. And about eight o'clock that night, he decided that he was going to turn in for the evening. It had been a long day. He had traveled far, talked to a lot of people and was pretty tired. And of course, had a lot of work ahead of him. So he figured, you know, eight o'clock, that's a good time to check in. So there wasn't really a, a place 
to sleep inside the house. There was, uh, you know, some some broken furniture. Uh, there wasn't really um, a, a bed, as it were. So he decided that he was just going to lay out whatever he could and sleep directly on the floor. So what do you think happened next? So he just started to get, you know, in that place where you you fall, you're falling asleep, but you're not fully asleep just yet. Your eyes are closed, you're totally relaxed, and you know, in just minutes you could just be out. So as he's falling asleep, he heard this wild screaming coming from inside the house. So imagine how this would have just jolted him awake. And he wondered, was this screaming coming from someone in the house? Was it the old man? Was it the old miser? Was he still there? Was he in distress? Was it somebody else? Was it truly a ghost? Well, he sat up, looked around. The house was completely dark. And he decided that, again, he didn't believe in any ghosts. So he was going to go and check it out. So we got up, started to walk through the rooms of the house when all of a sudden he heard chains clinking. And he's looking around and he doesn't see the source of these chains clinking. And mind you, just a few minutes before, he heard this screaming in the house. So he realized that maybe the best place to check would be down in the cellar. Would you be brave enough to go in the cellar? So he decided that he was brave enough. An old sea captain, nothing scared him. So he decided that, you know, maybe maybe go down to the cellar and uh, see what was going on there. And I'm sure he must have been at least a, a little bit afraid. So he went over to the cellar door and tried to open it. And he heard the sounds of the chains getting louder. He started to hear the groaning again and he managed to get the cellar door open. He lifted up the latch and he saw in the darkness of the cellar a figure dressed in white reaching out with his hand pointed right at him. And he heard a loud moan and then the figure was gone. And he stood there, could not believe his eyes in what had happened. And he could hear something on the staircase behind him. He took a look, there was nothing there. And it got quiet. It got so quiet. It was quiet like the still of a grave in the middle of the night. You know, that quiet. No church bell in the distance. Just quiet. Do you think he was scared at this point? Or do you think he was still the brave captain that we had envisioned? Well, if he was scared, I certainly could not blame him for being frightened. Well, it started to rain outside just as it's about to do right now where I am. I'm looking at big, dark, black clouds just outside my window. And it seems as though that night, the same thing was forming outside. 
the clouds had gotten dark, the moon had disappeared, and it started to rain. And a streak of lightning came through and lit up the entire house. So, of course, as you guessed it, the captain was not as brave as he had made himself out to be. And he ended up leaving the farmhouse. And he went to the nearest house that he could find and explained what had happened. In the pouring rain, he's running from this ghost that was in this house. That he had all these grand plans to renovate and move his own family into. So he told his story to the people that lived in this house. And of course, it was a, another farmer who listened to his tale. Probably not terribly surprised because everybody had claimed, you know, that this farmhouse was haunted. So, uh, of course, he explained about the figure coming out of the dark and reaching out and pointing to him as if beckoning him to the other side. However... Uh, they decided that it wasn't uh, any of their concern and uh, this family that he decided to spend the night with um, wasn't about to go and check this out for themselves. So he was kind of on his own and in the morning um, he decided that he was going to go back to the house and do some sort of investigation to figure out what had happened. You know, everything seems, uh, you know, nicer in the light of day. Everything seems less scary in the light of day. And I'm sure, you know, he thought about all night long, you know, what he had experienced and if he truly, you know, experienced the way that the story goes. So, of course, again, he was brave during the daylight and said, you know, I'm not going to believe in ghosts. There's going to be you know, some sort of logical explanation. He could buy the house for next to nothing and he wasn't going to let anything get in the way. Certainly not a ghost in buying this old house. So this time he managed to convince um, a couple of people, one of the farmhands, another man in town, to go with him and go back to the house and investigate and see truly what was going on there. So the three men were ready. And they made the walk from from uh, the gentleman's farmhouse he had spent the night with, walked all the way, walked up to the front door of this ramshackle farmhouse, which, again, we weren't quite sure fully haunted. And they went through the entire house, starting with the upper rooms, exploring, trying to find chains, went down into the lower rooms. The three men looked everywhere, trying to find these ghosts of the night before. And they came up with nothing. They did not see a, a single soul. They could not solve this ghostly mystery. So, of course, sea captain, smart man, realized that a lot of the activity had taken place down in the cellar. So he said, all right, we're going to have to go down and check the cellar. Spooky, right? So now we're going to go down into the cellar. So the light of day is now about to disappear as he gets ready to climb down the stairs into the cellar. And of course, they lit a candle. See why it's so important to light your candle? So they lit a candle to kind of shoo away the darkness. And they went down the steps, which, by the way, were pretty bo broken, considering, you know, the whole house was essentially um, falling apart. 
And there on the cellar floor, they found some boxes, uh, some pieces of barrels, which had recently been emptied from the looks of it. And there was uh, some paper down there, um, but nothing really to show uh, maybe what was in those barrels or what was in those boxes. You know, what was this mysterious stuff in the basement that he had found? So, of course, they decided that, you know, there had to be some sort of explanation to this stuff that was there because it appeared to be fairly recent. And, well, they looked a little bit more kind of off into the darker corners of the cellar and they actually found a few short pieces of chain. Uh, they found an old oilskin hat down there and, um, a few fishing implements kind of hidden off in the corner. And as they were getting ready to leave the cellar and go back upstairs, they did notice on the corner of one of the steps were some burned matches and they could just see them just tucked uh, underneath one of the stairs. And the story about the ghost started to become very suspicious to the captain. And of course, the two men that were with him wondered, you know, is this the type of ghost that needs to read by candlelight and was the type that would be wearing a hat in the basement? So the captain now was convinced that it was not a ghost, that there had to be something else going on there. And in fact, he believed that there was somebody else occupying the house that they just had not seen yet. And he really used the matches as evidence that there were there was somebody else there. So of course he decided that there was going to have to be some sort of explanation that he was going to find out because he was not going to give up the fight for this house. He wanted this house. He had made the deal for the house. So the two men he had brought with him said, you know what, we're with you. We want to find out who this ghost is or who this person is that is inside this house. He had them all, all riled up with the, the story from the night before. So, of course, they left underneath the daylight and hatched a plan. They went back to the farmhouse up the road and decided that they were going to go back later that night. Three brave men. Would you have gone with them? Would you have wanted to see what was going on in that house? I don't know. Under the cover of darkness when all you had was candlelight? Suspicious scene, though. So, of course, they decided that they were going to go back and try to see what was going on with this ghost now. So, they went back to the house, walked up to the front door, stood there with lanterns. However, this time, they didn't just have lanterns that they were carrying in their pocket. They actually carried, uh, two of them carried a gun. And they figured, all right, you know, this, this is going to be protection enough from whoever might be here. And they were ready to shoot if the situation deemed it necessary. So they go inside the house. The captain goes into the same room that he was in the night before, the same room that he had gone in to go to sleep. And it was quiet was so quiet for such a long time. Quiet as the tomb, we like to say. And all of a sudden, he heard a noise, and it was coming from the cellar. 
and he heard what sounded like very low voices. And of course, he looked out in the hall to see if it was the other two men that was with him. And he heard what sounded like a person walking up the broken stairs from the cellar. And the sound got louder and the footsteps came nearer and nearer. And he sat down and was nearly breathless, waiting for this figure, this ghost, whoever it was, to show up in front of him. Well, he decided that he was going to make sure that he was going to meet this figure with something protective in hand. And from one of the other men, he sat there with his gun. And he was ready to go. And as the door to the cellar opened, this figure in white appeared. The captain pulled the trigger. And the next thing you know, that white ghostly form made a hasty exit. Well, right back down the stairs, the ghost went. And the captain wondered what was going on now. He shot. What was he going to find down those stairs? So the men grabbed their lanterns and the captain all stood at the top of the staircase. And of course, the captain was yelling, did you see it? Did you see it? It looked like a ghost, but it also looked like a human being. He said, could you tell from what you had seen? And one of the men said it kind of looked ghost-like, but I'm not sure. However, he also said, I guess your bullet didn't do much harm. He said, because there's no marks, there's no sign that you actually shot someone and injured them. So no quick evidence. The only thing they could do was to continue to go down those stairs. So they started down the stairs and indeed there was evidence. There were a few drops of, dare we say, ghostly blood. Was it really ghostly blood? Blood on the stairs. Just a few drops down along the stairs. And he realized that he was getting closer and closer to solving this mystery. So he followed the few little drops of blood down the stairs. And as he looked across the floor with the other two men carrying their lanterns in the dark lantern light, could actually see that the trail of blood continued a little bit further and it went over to two of the large posts that were down up um, against the basement wall. Now he hadn't checked those posts before and he actually went up to them and noticed that the posts were actually movable. He could move them from side to side and of course he ended up moving two of the posts with the other two men and realized that there was a wooden door on the other side. And he became quite suspicious of what was going on there. And of course, he said, this must be some sort of secret door. So they opened up the door and of course, looked a little bit further and went into what looked like a cave underneath the ground. So now they're outside the house down, you know, down in the basement in this stone looking cave. And it was about four feet high and, you know, just about two feet wide. And it was totally dark. And, you know, they're clamoring with their lanterns, trying to get a closer look at what was down there. So they walked one by one, single file, 
into this cave-like tunnel underneath the house that they had just gone through the door in. And of course, when they came out the other side, they actually came out to a beach. And here they are out here on this beach. And he realized, wait a minute, this is sort of a secret tunnel. So of course they all stood there and realized that there was something really going on here. So they decided to take a walk around the beach. Again, it's still dark. They've got their lanterns. And by lantern light, as they walked to the beach, guess what they found? They found a white sheet. And they found some more wooden boxes, similar to the ones that were found down in the basement. And, of course, it was evident that there was a boat there and something was going on. Now, these boxes, again, were empty. There was nothing to be found, but they were just like the ones that were underneath the house. And the captain, no dummy again, he realized that he was probably dealing with smugglers because just across the water, of course, was the Canadian border. So he realized that perhaps this old house was actually serving as a headquarters for these Canadian smugglers. So the next day they decided that they were going to go back to the farmhouse and again sort of uh, wait until the cover of darkness and realize that you know this was really all a ruse to scare people away um, out of the house. But you know the captain was was on the trail and he said you know what I don't mind living there now. He said you know I'm, I'm sure my my wife and family wouldn't want to deal with that. He said so uh, so I'm gonna go back one more time just to make sure that there is nobody there. So he went back, decided that he was going to go back that one more night and see if anybody showed up. Of course, this time he went by himself. He was brave enough. He could handle it on his own. And he went that night, same room that he was in two nights before, sat there, waited in the quiet, when all of a sudden he heard once again a sound down in the cellar. And of course, he went down into the cellar, had his gun with him, the one that he got from one of the gentlemen he was with, went down and he heard this shuffling in the corner and he fired a shot and he heard something shuffle heading right through that tunnel that led to the beach, of course, down where the boat was. And he followed after. And the next thing you know, as he came out with lantern in hand, he saw a man in a boat making his way over to the other side, all the way over to the Canadian border. And he shot in the air once again, a warning shot to scare him from ever coming back. Well, of course, from that point on out, he stayed there for the remainder of the week. No one else showed up and the house was his. He decided that he was going to fix it up. He brought his family, closed up the smuggling tunnel, which nobody knows to this day what they were smuggling. But of course, we have to remember the temperance movement was big back in the day in Maine. Of course, there were, you know, the evils of alcohol. So we know that alcohol was being moved from place to place. We could certainly blame it on that. But there's many other things they could have been smuggling too. And the smugglers were never seen or heard from again. The captain took this beautiful Revolutionary War farmhouse, fixed it up, moved his family in, and the ghosts were no more.
So, was it a lucky break for the ghosts? <laughs> was it a lucky break for the captain? Was it unlucky for the ghosts? You decide. But that is our first story for the evening about the haunted farmhouse up in Eastport, Maine. So sort of haunted in its own way, um, but haunted by uh, the presence of smugglers. So I wanted to start you off with that, a nice, you know, descriptive story to pull you in. So that's the one from Maine. Now, where are we going to go to next? Do you think that coming back from the dead would be a lucky occasion or an unlucky occasion? So this particular story, which I really love, um, it sort of uh, brings me brings me a, a little bit of uh, a little bit of joy in its own way, which you'll you'll find out. Um, this story goes back to 1930. It actually um, happened in Vermont, but it was in uh, the Bangor Daily News. So Bangor, Maine newspaper told this story. The headline just grabs you. You cannot ignore the headline of this story. And the headline said, woman supposed to be dead by suicide reappears alive. Okay, come on now. You know you are going to drop whatever it is that you're doing and you're going to read this story. But you don't have to. I, your mystery maven Roxy Zwicker, will tell you this story. So again, um, we're going back to August, one of my favorite months, of 1930. Ah, the headline, woman supposed to be dead by suicide reappears alive. Hmm, how's this going to go? So this story uh, relates to a woman, Mrs. Catherine Rockwell Packard. We're just going to call her Mrs. Packard. She came back to Springfield, Vermont to find that her husband, uh, with whom she had left, had married another woman and she was the center of this very strange mystery. So the details of the story went that Catherine, who was the wife of a St. Albans candy maker, we just need to know what their vocation is, candy maker, and she was actually arrested and questioned as a witness in this very bizarre story. Her husband, George, was also brought in for questioning. And as I mentioned, George had just gotten married the month before in July. That woman he had married, she was from Rutland, Vermont. Now, the background details as to how all of this came about uh, really requires us to roll back the calendar to 1929. Catherine disappeared and um, her and her husband lived in uh, Rutland and she left him behind along with their two children, George Jr., who was three years old, and Helen, her daughter, who was only two. Can you imagine? She just got up, left her husband and her two kids and just disappeared into thin air? Or did she really disappear into thin air? 
a woman's body was found in a farm field in Chester, Vermont. And an autopsy revealed that there were traces of poison found in her stomach. And suicide was the verdict of this mysterious woman who was found in the field. So the body was identified by Mr. Packard. Mr. Packard said that that's my wife. In fact, he said the handwriting on the suicide note that was found with the body was his wife's handwriting. So this woman was buried in, um, in a cemetery in uh, Chester. At that point, the story seemed to be over. It seemed as though she had run off, committed suicide, and left her family, and eventually a body was found. Ah, but things aren't always what they seem. So moving now into the present, so we're now back in August of 1930, the dead woman was actually seen in, of all places, Manchester, New Hampshire. And she was quite alive and well, if you can imagine. And she actually had been sending letters to friends. And of course, one of those letters came to the attention of a woman named Miss Abbott, who worked with the Children's Aid Society in Vermont. And of course, she invited Mrs. Packard to meet her in Bellows Falls, Vermont. And well, not only did she meet Mrs. Packard, and she didn't go alone. She actually brought the state detective with her, Detective Brown. And Detective Brown had some questions for her. And in fact, Mrs. Packard was actually arrested. What was going on here? What was this story? Here was this woman who disappeared up and left her family. And now all of a sudden, here she is. And they thought that they had, you know, a, an open and closed case. So, of course, Detective Brown wanted to know exactly what had happened. And Mrs. Packard said that she actually had written similar notes about committing suicide because she had felt very despondent for quite some time. But that note, strangely enough, was not hers. So then Mr. Packard was brought in. Now, although the body that was found in Chester was said to be, you know, by Mr. Packer, his wife. Here's an interesting twist. The identity of this dead woman was not accepted by an insurance company that actually held a policy on her life. And that insurance policy was through the Vermont Children's Aid Society, of which she had actually been a ward of for many years. The insurance policy was for $459 and was actually payable to Mrs. Packard's mother. And the insurance company actually refused payment on that policy because they, it was not certainly established that the body that they found and buried was that of Mrs. Packard. So nothing was done in that case. And there was no information discovered as to the actual identity of the woman that was buried. So she's the mystery woman. We don't know who she is. So apparently, upon further investigation and further discussion, that body that they found had been laying in the field for quite some time. 
and it really could have been anybody. And when Mr. Packard made the identification based on the note, he also made it based on the coat that was found near the dead body, and he said that was his wife's coat. Well, as I mentioned, he had gotten married uh, the previous month. It was actually July before all of this happened. And um, of course, before Mrs. Packard had showed up, he had married somebody else. Her name was um, Margaret McFarland, and she also lived in Rutland. So of course, he uh, was contacted many, many times at the candy shop. And can you imagine He's at work in the candy shop and, you know, the state police investigators coming in talking about, you know, the, the undead wife and the dead body in a candy shop. Like I, I kind of like picture it in my head. So of course that was, you know, part of the story. And he was in complete disbelief that she was back in any way of weight or certain form. When he first heard it, he just denied there was no possible way that she in fact had to be that dead person. As Mrs. Packard was questioned, in, particularly in regards to him remarrying so soon, it was soon revealed that he had been having an affair with this woman that he later married that July. And Mrs. Packard said that she didn't know anything about it when she took off, even though the affair had been going on at that time. So, of course, what happened while she was away? Well, while she was away, she said she visited Springfield, uh, Vermont, and actually worked in a hospital there. She took off and visited Cleveland, Ohio, and then returned back to Manchester, New Hampshire, all the while sending these postcards. So, of course, here's the, uh, oh, the dead end to this story, dare we say. So, just to put this story in a perfect package with a little bow on top. This is a story that you might actually be able to go and check out on your own. George um, died in 1965 at the age of 55 and he is buried at the Lakeview Cemetery in Burlington, Vermont. And in the end, he had seven children by five different wives. Yes, you heard that right. He had married over the years five different women and had seven children. Of course, we know who two of them are, his first wife and, of course, his second wife. As the, the story went, Mrs. Packard went on with her life, and obviously Mr. Packard went on with his life um, and went on to meet several other women of whom he married and had additional children. So, tell me, who is the lucky or the unlucky one in this story? Was it Mrs. Packard? Was it Mr. Packard? Was it uh, the new wife, Margaret? Seven children by five different wives. Yes, he was indeed a very busy man. So we've done Maine. We've done Vermont. We have to do dun, 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 Connecticut. And some of my favorite stories have twists and turns, as you know. So this is another story with some twists and turns from Connecticut. 
And this is a great story because we can go back to the newspaper archives and sort of relive the moments as this story unfolded over a very long span of years. So once again, it is up to you to decide who is lucky in this story and who is unlucky in this story. So this story relates to a woman named Kate Cobb, C-O-B-B. -B. She was described in the newspapers as an attractive woman, um, as attractive as you could find in the entire state of Connecticut, whatever that meant. Again, we have to consider that in the 19th century, we're here in the late 1800s, uh, the way newspapers were written at the time is far different than the way they uh, write stories today in, in a different kind of way. So her husband um, was uh, Charlie Cobb, and Charlie was a pretty popular guy, and they lived in Norwich, Connecticut, and, well, for as popular as he was, apparently he wasn't terribly popular with his wife because she was busy having an affair with the local druggist, um, who was Wesley Bishop. And um, he was described as being infatuated with Kate. And Kate was described by the newspaper as being infatuated with Wesley. So... These two people, uh, well, they became intimate partners, and according to sworn statements by Wesley, the two of them actually plotted murder together. Who do you think they plotted murder on? Well, their affair was well known by many people in Norwich, Connecticut. And of course, when Kate's husband and Wesley's wife both turned up dead within hours of one another, well, suspicion was definitely aroused. So a chemical analysis an autopsy of both of the victims' stomachs ensued. And guess what that showed? Now remember, Wesley was the local druggist. They found arsenic, arsenic poisoning. So each of their stomachs revealed that they had taken a fatal dose of arsenic, which had killed them both. Kate and Wesley were both arrested in July of 1878. And they were indicted by a grand jury and Kate went on trial first. Now, this was actually a um, time in the judicial system where there were two judges and a jury who sat on the case. There was an underlying belief during the trial that Kate would never have been found guilty except for the fact that Wesley turned state evidence against her. He revealed the plot and was willing to testify. Now, I can't even imagine, I mean, these two people 
infatuated with one another, so much in love, sitting down and plotting this double murder by arsenic, yet he turned on her in court. Wesley testified that he and Kate plotted the murders and that Kate poisoned her husband by putting arsenic in his tea. And of course, Wesley put arsenic in his wife's tea. Wesley confessed that he was the one that supplied Kate with the arsenic, of course, from the apothecary that he worked at. Kate was found guilty of second degree murder. And she was sentenced to state prison for life. Now, Kate maintained her innocence and stated that she had told the truth in court. You know, there she was not admitting to one bit of the crime. Wait, wait till you hear the twist in this. So she was brought to the Connecticut State Prison and remained there for 21 years until 1900. And at that point, she requested a uh, basically a parole hearing. She wanted to uh, see if she could get her sentence lowered. Maybe she could get pardoned. She did her best to try to get out again maintaining her innocence. The newspapers once again gave us quite the description of her that day. So if you can just bring up the screen of your mind and imagine what Kate looked like by the description, she appeared before the, uh, before the board and it's in such stunning detail. She was described as a tall and slender woman dressed all in black. She wore a black accordion pleated collar. She had a black hat trimmed with black feathers and she wore a long black veil trimmed with lace in front of her face. But the newspaper article went on to say that despite the veil, you could still see all these years later the beautiful features of her face behind the veil. She was described as speaking to the board with a mellow yet very persuasive voice when she spoke to the board. And the appeal board actually had a letter that had been submitted by one of the jurors from the original trial who had explained that the jury had seriously considered finding Kate innocent, but they felt so much pressure from the community in regards to the murder and of course what was going on behind the scenes that they felt they had no choice but to present a guilty conviction, although they had second thoughts about that. Now, Kate had explained to the board that her husband actually had been taking arsenic on his own, by his own hand, for three years before he died. Now, why might that be? Well, apparently he was taking arsenic because his whiskers were falling out. And he took so much pride in his appearance, he couldn't bear 
to have his whiskers falling out. So he took a little bit of arsenic each day, she said, to help compensate for that. So, of course, the board, who was, you know, hearing this defense again, had said that if she was indeed innocent, then Wesley, who was, you know, also imprisoned as well, and they were actually the same prison in Norwich, although, you know, they were separated, that Wesley should come forward then and tell the truth, you know, and, and just lay it all out there. And again, this was in 1910. And Wesley stuck to his story. He is like, nope, this is a deal we made. This is the pact that we made. We agreed to kill our spouses. And of course, it was denied. She was not let out. And in fact, that fall, in the fall of 1910, Wesley actually died from liver cancer. So four years later, so now it's 1914, the case was brought in front of the board again. And she went for another pardon. And there were interesting stories that were written about Kate, how she almost was becoming this folk hero. As people in the community were dying off, there were less and less people pointing the finger at her. So now, since there were less people, now there were people actually becoming fans of hers. And she was known for doing very intricate needlepoint in jail. And people were clamoring to buy the needlepoint that Kate was making. It's such a strange story. Surprisingly enough, this time when she went in front of the board, she had brought a, um, a woman named uh, Miss Mary Hall. And she was from an organization that was known as the Goodwill Club. And she was really there to argue in favor of Kate's release. And part of the reason for her argument in 1914 was because she wanted Kate to spend her remaining years with her daughter and son and her grandchildren. And she had never even met her grandchildren. And of course, you know, that, that wasn't fair to do to them. Now, as strange as that might sound, in December of 1914, Kate Cobb was freed after spending 35 years in prison for the arsenic murder. There you go. So again, you know, the end of the story is strange twist. She sort of became this interesting folk hero for, for people that were now sympathizing with what had happened to her. So fascinating story. And there are so many tales from uh, the 19th century of murder via arsenic. So who was truly in that story the lucky one? And who was the unlucky one? So I truly hope you enjoyed that story from um, Norwich, Connecticut. Again, started in the late 1800s, brought us all the way up to 1914. All right. So and before we um, finish up, I have one little short uh, snippet to, of a story to share with you. 
So if um, you aren't following this page, make sure that you've liked and followed this page. You can find me on Instagram at RoxyZW. You can go to our website, newenglandcuriosities.com, and you can see all the things that we have to offer. We'll actually be uh, unrolling a few tours very soon on our calendar. So if you haven't ever joined us for one of our tours, you can uh, go ahead and do that. We also have some virtual tours on schedule as well so you can check those out so i wanted to share with you uh this little snippet of a uh, story it's just called death watch and um this is one that um actually comes out of one of the books that i've written i'm actually almost done almost um with my next book i'll be turning uh, the manuscript in next week and um it should be out this fall and i'll be revealing very soon what the title of that book is all right, so we're going to end with Death Watch because it is springtime and I do enjoy being on the Cape in the spring. So in the old colonial houses on Cape Cod, the sound of a wood tick beetle was believed to be an omen of death. Known as the Death Watch Beetle, it has a hard case upon its head with which it taps upon any hard substance. In many instances, coming through the floorboards of the old homes. In reality, the ticking is a call to other insects in its species, in the same way that cricket noises are notes of communication with other crickets. There is a superstition linked with the Death Watch Beetle, which, like many superstitions, is based upon the theory of probabilities. The Death Watch sound is usually heard in the springtime, and the belief is that someone in the house will die before the year ends. Those who were superstitious heard the sound, knew that it was a portent of things to come. The sounds of the beetle foretold of a coming death to the person who heard it. While the little beetle was just tapping to call out to his mate, and perhaps peeping into every corner and crevice of the house to find her, his actions caused fear and panic in the listener unlucky enough to hear him. So there is our little snippet of a tale of the Death Watch Beetle. So as I mentioned, I hope that you're doing well, and I will be back really soon. So until we meet again, friends, fans, and fiends, I am your mystery maven, Roxy Zwicker, reminding you to stay spooky. Until we meet again, good night.